You're listening to WJMSRadio.com, where radio is reimagined. The Fired Up Show starts right now. And welcome, welcome. It's Monday, it's politics, and this is Fired Up. This is your host, Steve, right here on WJMSRadio.com. Just as every week we do, we are about to get into the business of the mechanics of politics, what makes it tick or what makes it not tick. As usual, as we start off our episode, uh, welcome to you all, and I appreciate your being here. Uh, Let's start off with our numbers, as we always do, tracking the progress of the COVID pandemic here in the United States. Well, we have crossed over 5 million diagnosed cases uh, here in the U.S., uh, 5.04 million to be more exact, and we've had over 163,000 people who have perished from the disease. So this continues to be, you know, a a pandemic running across our country, uh, hitting new spots and turning those into hot spots. Uh, we're going to talk about COVID in a little more detail in a moment, but I want to jump away for a second and bring up a very important situation that's happening down in North Carolina. And uh, what we have down there is a gentleman by the name of Ronnie Long was convicted of a uh, a crime in North Carolina by an all-white jury with uh, no evidence that linked him to the crimes other than, you know, contaminated uh, cross-racial eyewitness identification uh, who identified the uh, perpetrator as a light-skinned black man when Ronnie Long is a very dark, Uh, skinned black man for starters. Um, But what really makes this case uh, something worth noting and the reason I bring it up here is that he has been uh, trying to get a new trial or get his conviction overturned or commuted since his conviction in 1976. That's 44 years he has waited for justice uh, in the North Carolina uh, criminal justice system. And, you know, without going into, you know, the details, I will post a link to an article describing the case and and what has been going on with it. Uh, But just wanted to point out that uh, it is important that the the black community, the white community, any of the the people who believe that, you know, justice must be carried out and must be fair should contact the governor of Uh, North Carolina, uh, Democrat Roy Cooper. Uh, His telephone number is 919-814-2000. And his email address is roy.cooper at nc.gov. Please reach out and, you know, check into the case, make your own decision. But this is clearly a, a case of miscarriage of justice. And we need citizen action to uh, have him get another trial or have his sentence uh, commuted by the governor. And there is strong appeal for that to happen. So, you know, please uh, check the uh, facebook.com forward slash fired up radio webpage. And, uh, you know, you'll see the links there. Read the story for yourself. Do your own digging. Find your own information. But clearly here is a man who deserves uh, for justice to be served after so many years waiting. So moving back, getting back to COVID-19, the coronavirus here in this country, and you know, it, it continues to really illustrate and shine a bright light on the, the difficulties and the problems and the politics that's being played and the games that are being played with this pandemic for political purposes, uh, you know, and I, I've talked about this many times on the show here, uh, we have, you know, uh, you know, blame on both sides. Now, granted, the Republicans control the government. They have the White House and they have the Senate, uh, but the Democrats control the House. So, you know, not, not getting deeply into the blame game, but clearly, since the Republicans are in control, they own the lion's share of the, the blame for this, this just terrible handling of this pandemic in our country. Uh, but the Democrats, they're complicit in it, too. They have, you know, they have a piece of the pie and, and a part of the blame that they need to share. You know, clearly the Republicans are are playing games with this and some other things that we'll talk about in this episode. 
uh, for political purposes as we are somewhere in the vicinity of about 80 days or so until the November elections for president and you know members of the Senate, members of the House, and, and so forth on down the ballot lines in, in all the states. But you know the idea that you know our government as a whole is playing games while people are getting sick and suffering and dying uh, is just something that is not acceptable. I saw a news article uh, just on Sunday that reported that the youngest person in this country to have died from the COVID-19 coronavirus disease was a seven-year-old boy uh, who attended uh, church service and came into contact with two uh, senior citizens who were there uh, who were both infected at the time. And as a result, he became infected and ended up having a seizure at his home while, while taking a shower and was rushed to the hospital where he later died. Seven years old. Any death is a tragedy, you know, and, and we've had over 163,000 tragedies happen in this country over the course of this virus uh, this year. But, you know, it just, you know, it, 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 it is beyond the pale of, of irresponsibility and ridiculousness for a seven-year-old child to die from this illness when the mechanisms are there to, you know, control the spread to, to, you know, minimize the infection rates. Uh, this has been proven around the world in many other countries where, you know, they have, you know, new case rates of a couple of hundred during a day when in the U.S. we have 54,000 in a day. And we have 1,000 deaths a day where, you know, other countries have, you know, a, a dozen or 15 or 20 or three so, you know, there is a lot of blame to go in the Republican camp and in the Democrat camp. And what it comes down to is we have to, to draw the line as citizens and as voters and as the people who elect these officials to represent us in our government and say, this has got to stop. This has to stop now. You need to stop playing games. You need to find a common solution and make that happen. You know, it, it is not uh, overly difficult for, you know, Democrats and Republicans or senators and congressmen to come together to resolve differences and come forward with a bill for the executive to sign. It happens quite frequently when the uh, House of Representatives passes one bill and the Senate passes a bill that has differences. What happens is they form what's called a conference committee, which consists of, dem, you know, uh, Democrats and Republicans, uh, senators and congresspeople, and they get together and they form the compromise legislation that then goes on and is voted on by both bodies, uh, which, since they both have a piece of it and it is a compromise, uh, it passes and it goes to the president for his or her signature. That's the way the system is designed to work. It has not taken place with the COVID-19 uh, pandemic and the reaction from the government in this country. What we have seen is, you know, brinksmanship, as I talked about last week's show, where one side is pushing the other side, uh, trying to get them as close to the edge so that they blink and yield to, you know, to one position or another. Uh, or, you know, it is a, a game of showmanship. Uh, it is sound bites and it is photo ops and it is press conferences, but nothing is getting done. And if you don't believe me, just look at the fact that, number one, the uh, additional uh, stimulus payment, uh, the $600 that was supposed to be added to what the states were paying for unemployment insurance to help people uh, stay afloat and be able to at least keep up or at least get some of their bills paid and food on the table and other necessities while this, this pandemic uh, runs its course in the country. Well, that payment has stopped. And by the time we get through with all of the wrangling and the, the back and forth with it, uh, August will be gone and then it will come into September. And lo and behold, in September, the 
government needs to take up the budget, which has to be passed by the end of October, which is the end of the fiscal year for the government of the United States. Otherwise, what we could end up with is a government shutdown, which is exactly what we need to have happen while we have a pandemic, while we have 18 million people out of work, while we have an economy that is slowly, and in some cases rapidly, uh, depending on which uh, economic analyst you're talking to, uh, descending toward a recession, uh, we need to have the government shut down. Oh, yes, we do. Uh, so, you know, as I said, this, is, this has gone from just, from just being unacceptable to being almost, you know, I dare say criminal that, you know, the, the elected officials that we put in office, and again, Democrat, Republican, it doesn't matter. They both need to come together and take care of we, the people. That's what we send them there for. And if they're not doing that job, then come November, we need to do some house cleaning. So, you know, right now, you know, our, our call to action is crystal clear. We need to be contacting our elected officials locally, our elected officials at the state level, our elected officials at the national level, and letting them know in un no uncertain terms that this has got to stop. You need to come together, find a solution that satisfies the needs of the people, and make that happen. That's what we want you to do, and if you don't do it, then come November, those of you that are up for re-election, get your resumes in order because you will be looking for another job. And for those of you who won't come up until the next cycle in two years, we have a long memory and we won't forget who did not stand up for us, whether they are in our party or in the other party. So, you know, that is clear. And <laughs> I, I, I didn't want to make this about, you know, President Trump, but one thing that did occur last week uh, he gave an interview with uh, Jonathan Swan from Axios. Uh, you, can, you can look it up. It's all over the Internet. Uh, and in this interview, you know, he was all over the place with less than factual information. And I'm being generous. He is of the belief that he, in particular, and his administration in general has been doing a great job of managing this crisis. Well, you know, you can you can stack up 163,000 you know deaths against a, a great job and and have that debate. Uh, I'm going to take it to a, a different level and kind of you know uh, give you a sense of where and what type of problems we face in dealing with the government reactions to the uh, COVID-19 coronavirus you know, pandemic. So a, a bit of personal preference or personal privilege here. Uh, this coming week, uh, my son is having a wedding shower because he and his lovely fiance, Chandra, are getting married. And, you know, it's in Massachusetts. Well, the governor of Massachusetts, Governor Baker, uh, put an, an order in place on the 1st of August that in order for someone from outside the state of Massachusetts to come into that state, you need to have a COVID-19 test with, done within 72 hours and br of your arrival in Massachusetts and bring the proof of that uh, test, you know, if you're tested negative, uh, with you so that you can show it at the appropriate time when you get stopped as you approach or across the border into Massachusetts. Now, that's all well and good. You know, that, that, that's a fairly, you know, on its face, that's a fairly uh, responsible, fairly, you know, straightforward approach to try and keep the spread of COVID-19 in Massachusetts uh, as low as it is. The problem comes in in particular, here in the state of Pennsylvania, where I live, is there is no place that you can get a COVID-19 test completed and get your results back within three days. Uh, I have been calling all over to find if there is such a place, and so far, the best I've seen is you can get your results back in eight days. Well, if I take a COVID test eight days out, that doesn't meet the requirements of the law in Massachusetts. If I take a test 
within the three days to meet the law in Massachusetts, I have to quarantine for the remaining five before I can come out and go anywhere in the state and do anything. You know, it, it just shows kind of how the right hand doesn't know what the left hand is doing. If you were going to have that kind of guideline, you should be reasonably certain that it is able to be met by the general population. Not every state has the rapid testing that uh, you need in order to meet that deadline. Some do. Uh, I believe the number is around 12. Uh, and Pennsylvania is not one of them. So, you know, it, it just, you know, gives an idea of how, you know, the ideas that come forward sometimes look like they are not being thoroughly thought through that it, it seems that if we were going to set a three-day limit uh, between the taking of the test and getting the results, we should at least do some diligence to make sure that that is an achievable goal. Uh, so, you know, that, that's kind of the, the, the mini rant on that. The next uh, subject that I, I want to bring up is, you know, this, this whole uh, idea of the, the things that occurred, you know, in this interview uh, and again, it just speaks to how there is what seems to be a lack of a cohesive national plan. And I've, I've been listening over the course of the last you know, week, 10 days to the news media, to reading the sources, reading the, the information coming out from across the spectrum. And the one thing that's clear is that there is no national strategy. And it is even something that's being pointed out uh, in Europe. You know, many European leaders and, and, you know, common people, you know, the man and woman on the street in cities across Europe marvel at the fact that the United States, the so-called leader of the free world, the, the so-called, you know, uh, economic engine of the free world, hasn't been able to put together a cohesive national health strategy around the COVID-19 uh, coronavirus pandemic. Uh, other countries in the world, France, had a, a cohesive plan. Italy, which early on led the world in terms of the number of cases, um, basically went on a 10-week lockdown where they shut it all down. And now their number of cases is, you know, dozens, if that. You know, France did a similar thing. Germany has done a similar thing. Uh, you know, uh, South Korea has done a similar thing. Uh, you know, New Zealand has got their numbers down to near zero. You know, it can be done. You know, it is just that the will of the government to make the tough call and put the enforcement behind it so that, you know, we do what we need to do in order to heal our country and I get, I, I hear the arguments, I've read a lot of the discussion about, you know, why I, I don't have to wear my mask and why I, I can gather in large crowds wherever I'm, I want to be, uh, you know, and, and it's freedom and independence and, and all of this. The problem is, is that when large numbers of people get together uh, and don't wear masks and don't socially distance, large numbers of people get sick and large numbers of people will die. Uh, and, you know, to, to speak to that in case in point, this weekend just passed, the weekend before the, this show is being aired, uh, is the annual uh, motorcycle week in Sturgis, South Dakota. Uh, so, you know, Sturgis, a town of like 7,500 people, uh, is playing host to probably... 50 or 60,000 uh, motorcycle enthusiasts for the weekend. It will be interesting to see in a couple of weeks into the, into the next month how many new cases spring up, not only in Sturgis, but in all of the places where these, these motorcycle enthusiasts uh, come in from uh, to see if they pick up a virus there and bring it back to their hometown or their home community. We will see you know, spikes all over the country uh, from, you know, targeting people who were in Sturgis. Yeah, I, I get it. I understand. You know, there, there is some level of resistance uh, to uh, people uh, telling other people what they need to do, what they have to do. But, 
you know, th this is literally life and death. This is a seven-year-old boy who went to church, uh, you know, happened to be next to or interact with uh, two probably very nice senior citizens who were infected at the time with COVID-19 and subsequently died from it, uh, who became sick, who was hospitalized, and who ended up dying. Uh, this is, you know, uh, elected officials who, you know, adamantly were out in front about not wearing a mask, uh, who now contract the disease and they're being hospitalized. Uh, you know, this has happened with, you know, senators and congresspeople in Washington, D.C. This has happened to people that are on the staff in the White House. You know, it, this disease does not care about your social status your station in life, doesn't care about your politics, doesn't care about your party. This disease only cares about spreading and infecting people. And the more we enable that and the more we assist that by not doing what our doctors and our scientists are telling us to do, uh, the more people that are going to die. The numbers are now being projected that we could be at twice this number, that we could be over 300,000 deaths by November and, and possibly even more than that by the end of the year. And we are still nowhere near close to having a, a reliable, safe, tested vaccine that can be mass produced and given to the people in this country to help protect them. You know, and there's still the call out there that we're going to have a, a second surge in this nationally. And we're not even through with the first one yet. So, I mean, there is a, still a lot, a lot of legs left to this pandemic. Uh, it is something that is going to be with us, just like the common flu, uh, going forward for, for many years, if not forever. So... You know, the, the social distancing, the precautions we need to take, um, we need to take them. You know, it, it is not only in your individual best interest to keep you healthy, but it's in your family's interest, it's in your friends, it's in your community, it's in your city, in your state, and in your country's interest for you to do what you can to keep this disease from spreading. So, you know, this, this, is, this is our mandate now. This is what we have to do. This is the new normal. And uh, we may not like it. You know, I'm, I'm old enough to remember when seatbelts came out in cars. And there was much the same kind of resistance and resentment about wearing seatbelts. And, you know, obviously it wasn't until it became law that required seatbelt use. And it became enforceable and enforced by law enforcement through you know, tickets and fines and, and economic means that seatbelts became the norm. And now, you know, everybody, well, not everybody, most people, when they get in their car, they buckle up. Or when they put their children into the car, they don't just, you know, plop them into the back seat and let them bounce around, you know, like they used to do back in the 60s before seatbelts became a thing. But they put them into car seats. They strap them in. They make sure that they are strapped in. Even if mom and dad aren't strapped in, and I see this all the time when I'm on the road, uh, the kids are strapped in. So we need to take this to heart, America. This needs to be something that we do. So we will um, end uh, rant part one right here. <laughs> we'll take our break. When we come back, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, law enforcement in this country. You're listening to Fire It Up. My name is Steve. Uh, glad to have you here. We're on WJMSRadio.com and soon to be partnering out and broadcasting through Doublemint Radio out of Edinburgh, Scotland. So welcome, and uh, we'll be right back with you after the break. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is working to help keep you and your community safe from the threat of novel or new coronavirus. Take the following everyday steps to help avoid the spread of all respiratory viruses. Wash your hands often with soap and water for at least 20 seconds. Cover your cough or sneeze with a tissue. Throw the tissue away and then wash your hands. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. 
Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects or surfaces, such as remote controls and doorknobs. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. And stay home if you are sick. Call your healthcare provider if you develop fever, cough, or difficulty breathing. For more tips, visit cdc.gov. And we're back. Welcome back to Fired Up right here on WJMS Radio. And this is Steve. I'm your host each week. So let's pick it up where we left off, continuing to talk about the Republican and Democrat uh, issues uh, revolving around the coronavirus and, more importantly, the relief programs that uh, they have been working on for our benefit in Washington. Um, as I said in the first segment, you know, there there's you know, blame to go around and games being played and brinksmanship being practiced by both sides. I uh, want to talk a little bit about some of the things that have been going on and what the Republicans are saying and what the Democrats are saying. Uh, so let, let's start it off on the subject of unemployment benefits. The Republican plan would reduce the expanded unemployment benefit uh, from the $600 that it was up until it expired uh, down to $200 a week in addition to what state unemployment benefits uh, uh, are, are being paid. Uh, and extend the plan for two more months. Uh, after that, the states are to pay employees about 70% of the income they had before they lost their jobs. The Democrats uh, have proposed to extending the current weekly payments of $600 through January 2021. Uh, in direct payments, otherwise known as the stimulus payments, uh, the Senate Republican plan includes the $1,200 per in individual, um, you know, M Senator Mitch McConnell, the majority leader in the Senate, uh, promised even more support for families who care for vulnerable adult dependents. Uh, under the Democratic plan, they would have the $1,200 per family member up to $6,000 per household. Uh, for liability protection, where, you know, you cannot sue if your employer forces you to come back to work and you contract the disease, the Republican plan uh, includes, as one of its core proposals, measures to protect businesses and institutions from coronavirus-related lawsuits if they are following government guidelines. Uh, the Democrats did not include anything on this, and Democratic leaders have pushback in general against the idea. Uh, as far as schools and the monies needed to reopen schools and, and, and helping schools reopen, uh, the Republican plan includes $70 billion for helping schools to reopen and $30 billion for colleges and universities. The Democratic plan has $100, I'm sorry, $100 billion to support the educational needs of the states, school districts, and institutions of higher education in, res in response to the coronavirus. For funding for testing, contact tracing, and treatment, the Republicans proposed $16 billion for testing and $25 billion to go for hospitals to help with the cost of caring for the COVID-19 patients. The Democratic plan is $75 billion for testing, tracing, and isolation measures and to support health care providers and ensure free access to treatment for individuals. Uh, another portion of the plan uh, on paycheck protection or the PPP program uh, the Democratic plan would give small businesses more flexibility with how they use the loans in this program. Previously, they were required to use 75% for payroll expenses or be forced to pay it back as a loan. The Republicans would allow the hardest-hit small employers, whose revenues have declined by 50% or more, to get a second forgivable loan under the program. To qualify, businesses must have 300 or fewer employees. Uh, for state and local governments, the Democrats are proposing nearly $1 trillion in aid to state, local, territorial, and tribal governments to help pay first responders, health care workers, and teachers. The Republican plan does not include new money, but Republicans said it would give state and local leaders more flexibility in spending the $150 billion passed under the CARES Act back in March. So, you know, there is clearly uh, some wide territory between what the Republicans and what the Democrats are proposing uh, as far as aid to individual states and businesses. 
uh, under the auspice of COVID-19 response. In related, you know, just this past week, President Trump signed four executive orders for economic relief uh, related to the coronavirus uh, conditions here in the country. One of them is an extension to the federal unemployment supplement, but at a reduced rate of $400 per week. So the Republican Senate was talking 200, and they had, you know, having talks with the Democrats about, you know, maybe meeting in the middle at 400. The Senate was saying 200. The president signed an executive order uh, setting the supplement at 400 per week. There's a payroll tax holiday being proposed or being signed under executive order that would cover through the end of the year for Americans earning less than $100,000. Basically, that means that the payroll tax that you pay out of your weekly salary, uh, which goes to fund you know, federal programs, including Medicare, uh, would be suspended until the uh, end of the year. Uh, extended student loan relief was also an executive order signed by the president, uh, and that would uh, continue the moratorium on student loan payments through the end of the year as well, and a renewal of the eviction moratorium to keep struggling Americans in their homes. Now, it, it should be noted that the, the eviction moratorium uh, and the student loan uh, all were sort of tied by the president to the outcomes of the November election, we will see about that. Uh, And I guess it raises the question as to, are they in fact buying the votes of the American public? In similar topic, Treasury Secretary Mnuchin uh, had rejected the total $2 trillion coronavirus stimulus offer from the Democrats, calling it a non-starter Uh, as far as his perspective, which doesn't seem to line up with what the President of the United States is saying, as I just mentioned with his executive orders, and what the Republicans are proposing, uh, you know, in in their discussions with the Democrats. So, you know, it, it, again, there is a lack of a cohesive, universal, uh, consistent government policy on COVID-19 coronavirus, and it's evident by the fact that all of these individual components uh, of the, the uh, elected officials and appointed officials who are supposed to be dealing with this seem not to be talking with each other. Uh, you know, this is, this is, as I said earlier, you know, this is unacceptable. We need to have, you know, some type of body whether it is what is what is known as a blue ribbon commission, where you know independent, nonpartisan individuals are brought together, given a problem and you know given a time frame to come up with a solution that can then be debated and voted on and given to the president for signature, or we need to have some type of conference committee, as is done when a House bill and a Senate bill need to be reconciled with each other again to come up with a unified piece of legislation that can be signed by the president. In either of these events, you know, this has not happened with our government. And it is not something that's gone unnoticed. As I said earlier, you know, many European leaders, uh, many uh, uh, spokespeople in Europe and countries around the world are looking at the, the United States and wondering, you know, what the hell is going on? with the so-called greatest nation on the, on the face of the earth, why can't they get it together, and why are they letting so many of their people die? So, you know, there is a lot of, you know, games being played. There are a lot of pieces in this puzzle that are working to, uh, to impact, you know, what we do or don't do with the coronavirus. Uh, and, you know, it, it's extending into our political processes as well. There were news articles that came out just this past week uh, that the newly appointed uh, Postmaster General, the United States Postal Service, uh, has uh, proposed and is starting to put in place guidelines that will actually slow down the delivery of the mail in this country. Now, you know, that in and of itself would be problematic 
but we are facing you know an upcoming national election in in the time of a you know countrywide pandemic where you know gathering together like at a polling place uh, is not the safest thing to do in order to cast your vote so there is going to be a heavy reliance on mail-in ballots uh, for the upcoming you know national election at a time when the post office is taking absolute measures which have been you know reported and fact-checked and and proven are going to slow down the process of delivering the mail of moving the mail through the system uh, and you know this will serve as a nationwide you know voter suppression effort uh, and you know again just another example of the level of political game that's being played as we come up onto the election in November. Now, an interesting side note is, you know, the president was, you know, supportive of the new postmaster general and his plans until uh, it was told to him that it would adversely impact the Republican vote in Florida whereby, you know, he came out in the media and was talking about how, you know, this, this really shouldn't apply in Florida because Florida has a good system and, you know, theirs is working and so on and so forth when it's clear that, you know, anything that restricted mail-in balloting would have an adverse uh, impact on the Republican vote in Florida, a key state in the electoral college map that the president needs for re-election. So you can read into that, you know, a, as you will. Um, you know, it, it just is, you know, one more thing that is proving, you know, a lack of overall leadership by our government, everybody, all parties, uh, in, in, in protecting us and helping us and keeping us from dying from this, this disease and also in moving forward to make sure that in November that the United States has a free and fair election. You know, in, in a side note, uh, there is still now indication that there is, you know, foreign interference that uh, is, is allegedly happening from Russia, from China, from Iran, and other players around the globe who are, you know, ramping up their efforts to impact the election you know, either in favor of, you know, the Democrats or in favor of the Republicans one way or another, but they are interfering with our election. And again, this is an unacceptable thing to happen. So, you know, as <laughs> it just continues, you know, it, it, it's to the point almost where you, you have to sit back and go like, well, what's next? You know, what else can happen? What, what else can we do to muck this up? You know, and that that is something that we, the people, need to deal with. We need to uh, let our elected officials know in no uncertain terms that this is, you know, totally unacceptable, that we are not going to stand for it, and that we are going to, you know, exercise our franchise and vote uh, as, as, as many as we can and make sure that the election goes forward and that our wishes are held. So what does this mean for, for you and for me? Well, number one, you know, as our call to actions go, you know, number one, request your mail-in ballots early. You know, now would not be too soon if they are ready to be, uh, to be mailed out or to be applied for. Now would not be too soon to get that application in the process so that you get that, that mail-in ballot mailed back to you uh, in plenty of time. Number two, once you get that ballot, fill it out and get it back in either through the mail or deliver it, you know, to the post office directly. Uh, I would, if I was going to mail it, I would take it to the post office uh, and make sure that it goes either into the mailbox that they generally have right outside the door or go inside and put it into the mail slot, you know, in the post office itself. Uh, if that isn't an option, I would check with your local voter registration office or your elector uh, office at your, your city hall or your county office 
and see if they have a collection box for mail-in ballots, and I would hand deliver it there to make sure that it gets through the system and to the people that need to count it and that it's there on time. So if that's not an option, you know, if, if those options aren't available to you, uh, unfortunately, and I hate to, to you know, have to recommend it, you're just going to need to, you know, mask up, glove up, uh, make sure you, you're socially distanced and you, you know, you may have to go vote in person, but it is critically important that you do vote. Uh, but it, it should be possible for everyone uh, to get an absentee ballot uh, through your state and you know vote by mail just make sure that you're getting that ballot into the the uh the voting office or the you know the election office in plenty of time so that it can be you know safely and properly handled and recorded and counted at the end of the day so you know it it's it's a tough time we're in strange times this is new territory and we are just going to have to uh, do what we can as safely as we can to make sure that we get the things we need to get done accomplished. All right, um, I want to change gears here uh, for the remaining minutes that we have. And I, I, I want to, you know, in, indulge a, a little bit of uh, an editorial here, a little bit of personal privilege, um, you know, so... For those of you uh, who follow this show, and I thank you for that, you know that I work to focus this show on the mechanics of how politics works or doesn't in this country, not necessarily on the politicians unless they are specific or key to the story. I'm going to deviate from that for a moment here. Uh, as I said, call it a moment of personal privilege. Uh, on Wednesday, August 5th, while traveling through the media outlets, as I do prepping for this show, uh, I happened to be watching uh, Chris Cuomo on CNN. On his show, he aired a segment which disturbed me to my core. Um, I have posted two links on the show's Facebook page, which I'd strongly urge you to watch. Both of these links cover the same story, but I'll get to that in a second. The Facebook page can be found by searching for Fired Up Radio on the Facebook.com site. When you click on the links, you're going to see a situation that occurred in Aurora, Colorado on the 4th of August where police detained a vehicle in a parking lot with a mother and four minors, her 6-year-old daughter, her 12-year-old sister, and two nieces, one 14 and the other 17. They were out for a girl's day out to get manicures at a local nail salon. Allegedly, according to the information from the police, the car was reported as stolen. Uh, again, this was what they were basing it on, even though the car belonged to the adult driver and had registration and insurance information uh, to prove that. The officers ordered the driver, Brittany Gilliam, out of the car at gunpoint with no explanation as to why. They also ordered the minor girls out of the car as well, also at gunpoint, and had them lay on the ground and apparently handcuff the two older girls. Again, no explanations were given at the time. The incident was video recorded by witnesses and has since gone viral. To get the full story, click on the links, as I mentioned, in the Fired Up Radio Facebook page. Uh, here's, what I, here's why I say this disturbed me so deeply. Um, I have two daughters and one stepdaughter. Additionally, I have a young teenage granddaughter. When watching that scene, I can absolutely place them in a situation like that. The thought that my young granddaughter could be ordered by police to lay on the ground with her hands behind her back at gunpoint just rips me up. Frankly, I am so beyond angry at what some, and I emphasize some, police officers are inflicting on communities of color in this country. This has got to be changed, and this has got to stop. Now, I am in no way diminishing the deaths or injury to any of the prior victims of violence at the hands of some, again, some 
police officers and their departments that continue to ignore or condone these conditions. On this show, we have calls to action on political situations that need our attention. In this case, with situations like this, we need to upgrade that. We need to upgrade it to a demand for action. Statements from police commissioners that the officers were following some procedure or training are not enough. Resignations of chiefs of police after shootings or beatings of subjects of color at uh, multiples of the rates for white subjects, in my opinion, mostly removes that command person from accountability or responsibility for the wrong. Police departments in this country, for the most part, are controlled by and receive directions from elected officials, such as mayors, city councils, and so forth, who are placed in these offices by we, the people, and therefore are subject to our votes. So that brings us to the demand of action that I'm calling for here. We, the voters of America, need to send a message to our local, state, and federal elected officials that we demand, not ask, not request, that they review police policies and procedures around interactions with suspects and the public in general. We demand that they seek and listen to public feedback on police violence issues to a larger extent than what we have had so far. Again, this is not a condemnation of all police. Rather, it is a call to look deeply and widely at the policies, rules, restrictions, and interpretations of those policies with a stronger focus on identifying and addressing those officers and command staff that have gone outside the intent of the protect and serve modality that we expect and desire from our law enforcement. So that, that's my editorial on that subject. Uh, I really, really was triggered by the images I saw of those four young girls laying on that hot asphalt in uh, a summer day in Aurora, Colorado, while officers were standing above them with guns drawn on what ended up being a false stop of the vehicle. The vehicle was not stolen. The license plate uh, that they were given uh, on the stolen vehicle was incorrect. Uh, that vehicle clearly uh, was not a threat. And I, I got to tell you, you know, it, it's when, when you p walk up to a vehicle and you see, you know, four young girls, you know, six years old, 12 years old, 14 and 17, you're, do you really think, you know, a, a carjacking ring, you know, there, there's more to this. You know, there is a, a matter of uh, interpretation and understanding and really common sense that, you know, any reasonable person would go, you're telling me that, you know, these four kids and their, their aunt and their mother uh, are, are jacking cars? Come on now. We are better than this. We need to be better than this. We need to make sure that our elected officials are better than this. And we need to make sure that the people they put in charge of those who are supposed to protect and serve and keep us safe and enforce the laws of our country are better than this. Thanks for listening each week as always. I appreciate it. If you want to give feedback on any of the stories I've covered, please send an email to firedupradio at yahoo.com. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. I'd love to hear what you think if you watch the videos. As I said, they will be posted up on my Facebook page by the time this show airs. So please take some time, check them out, and let me know what your thoughts are. I will look forward to talking to all of you again next week as we do each week. Be safe, protect yourselves, protect your loved ones, and I will talk to you again in seven days. If you hear this message, wherever you stand, I'm calling every woman, calling every man. We're the generation that can't afford to wait. The future started yesterday. We're already late 
Message wherever you stand, calling every woman, calling every man. We're the generation we can't afford to wait. The future started yesterday, and we're already late. 